Welcome to Beyond the Ocean. Here's a clip from today's guests. Thinking about these wave parks and the potential of the technology and the potential of the whole experience, I think you really have to think about the full consumer package, not just what does it feel like and how is it when you're at the park, but what does it feel like leading up to the experience and what does it feel like afterwards? You know, how do you keep people engaged long term, even when they're not surfing? Because the surfing itself is, you know, a relatively small amount of time. Caught my first tube this morning. Sir. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean, the podcast exploring surf parks and the impact of technology on the future of surfing. We speak with technology leaders, investors, operators, and surfing legends to explore this exciting new movement. I'm your host, Chris Klusner. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Beyond the Ocean. We're joined today by Ross Hale, and this is the Tech Meets Surf episode. So, you guys are in luck. Ross is a former managing director from Pivotal Labs, which is an, an extremely successful software development group. He's now the CEO of Artium, which is a Los Angeles and New York-based product development firm, which uses masterful and detail-oriented approaches to just build great digital products. Ross is a lifelong surfer. He's also visited some of the coolest surf parks out there, like Endland, and has some really specific and sharp ideas to enhance the digital side of surf parks, both before you arrive and while you're there, but also after you leave. Note that in today's conversation, Ross's introduction, he mentions a different name. Artium is a rebrand. If you want to learn more, check out thisisartium.com. Without further ado, I bring you this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Ross Hale, CEO of Artium. Hey, Ross, how are you? Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> I'm good. My pleasure. Really happy to be here. First time we can have someone on with a background like yours. Maybe that's the right place to start is you can share with the audience a little bit more about yourself and uh, your work. My name is Ross Hale. I'm both a surfer and a nerd, which is, uh, you know, you don't see a ton of overlap there unless you're talking about fin nerds where there is more overlap. So I am the CEO of Fractal Technology and we're a software development organization and I've been in software development for coming up on 20 years now and been running my own company for about a year. And what we're about is really a dedication to the craft of software development and creating cultures where we can level up as individuals, level up as teams, and really just become true masters of our craft. Also, I'm a surfer and have been pretty much my whole life, having grown up in Santa Barbara. And it's interesting that those two circles are not super concentric very often, but I've actually found in this dedication to craft a lot of similarity and a lot of parallels between surfing and the approach to dedicating yourself to something that is so all-consuming in your life, and also on technology and software and how much dedication that takes. Some of the elements of deep work that you were mentioning in terms of the focus required to excel at surfing and focus on surfing you know, has some parallels to what it takes to excel at technical development and product development. Would you say that's a fair parallel? Yeah, I would. And I think it's interesting, like it's especially relevant to 
these surf parks, which to me, as somebody who's very tech minded and always has been, that's been my dream, you know, from being a tiny kid in Santa Barbara, talking with my friends, like, what if you could have a pool that made waves and just surf it every day? And of course, growing up in Santa Barbara, you have to get used to long periods of no waves. When I think about deep work and how it relates to both software and surf parks, and deep work is basically this term for getting really into the zone, right? Something as surfers, we're all really familiar with this notion of kind of entering into a state of flow, getting into that zone where you're just catching a wave doing a few turns, paddling out, catching another one. I mean, I get in the zone a lot at Rincon. That's a spot I surfed a lot growing up where you basically, you know, walk all the way up to Indicator, catch a wave to Rivermouth, catch a wave to the Cove, catch a wave in, then walk back up and just keep doing that loop over and over again. That to me is my ideal flow state. I think when you're in that state, there's actually been a lot of studies that show that's when you do your best learning, right? That's when you're actually improving yourself the most. And there's a term that was coined by a bunch of researchers that looked into this effect called deliberate practice. And deliberate practice is when you kind of intentionally put yourself into this flow state to push the boundaries of what you're capable of doing. When it comes to technology, you know, coding, right, you can enter that flow state by putting your headphones on, playing music, and really focusing in on the code and building a bunch of software. You can also enter that flow state by pairing up with someone else and focusing on solving a problem together. And so at Fractal, we're really intentionally creating a scenario where by doing your work, by creating the software, you're naturally entering this flow state and naturally entering the state of deliberate practice to improve yourself. Many people are aware of this Malcolm Gladwell notion of, you know, 10,000 hours it takes 10,000 hours to make yourself an expert. And, you know, I think that definitely goes for pro surfers as well and being really good at surfing. That's so interesting to hear. And I'd, I'd love to just even go a little deeper. How do you kind of facilitate that from a strategy perspective or just very tactically with your teams? You mentioned putting on the headphones, and just creating that space. Are there other tactics that you've seen work really well in a professional context, develop that deep work mindset? A big one that we use is this notion of pair programming. And what pair programming is, it's basically two developers sitting next to each other one of them has their hands on the keyboard, and they're called the driver. And the other one is the navigator. And the driver is the one who's doing all the typing. And because of that, they have to think a lot about the minutiae, really the details of the code that they're writing. You know, syntax is correct, hitting the right keystrokes, just kind of quickly laying down code. The navigator then has the space to basically think high level about the code that's being written. And so they basically just have a conversation with each other while they're working and getting into that state of pairing when you kind of hit that flow, you know, four hours can go by snap of a finger and you've done a ton of work. So that's a great way to actually get sucked into this flow state. And because there's the social obligation bidirectionally with these two people, it kind of naturally prevents distractions, right? People won't kind of walk up and interrupt you. Even if an interruption does happen, one person's able to continue while the second takes care of that interruption. The most important thing about it, though, is you're able to get in eight hours a day or so of true solid work writing code. Or if you're a designer, you know, doing design, it's really about that, you know, how do you spend more of your day in that zone doing that work? 
and less of your day being interrupted by meetings and especially in this pandemic world, the constant stream of Zoom calls and chat messages and Slack and, you know, text and whatever. It's just such a, a massive interruption and kind of destroys people's productivity. So pairing is a massive one that we use. Um, we also really intentionally block out time where when people are going to do work solo, we have everybody kind of turn off their notifications. You put your phone in a drawer away from yourself and basically create a space where you are not going to be interrupted at all. Because even just receiving the notification, you know, hearing that little ping is enough to pull you out of that state where suddenly you're no longer kind of pushing yourself in both getting valuable work done and learning. So those are a couple ways we do it on the tech side. That's incredible. And was it the same at Pivotal? Is a similar playbook used there? Or is this really something that makes Fractal unique? We pretty much did the pairing thing 100% of the time. I think maybe one difference between Pivotal and Fractal is Pivotal had a very, very rigorous way that they did that, including kind of like meetings scheduled every day at the same time. And regardless of the situation, we pretty much leveraged that playbook at Pivotal. Whether you were a social media app, we were going to kind of have the same development process as if you were like a major healthcare provider or something. It worked really well. It was better than a lot of other processes. I think where it kind of fell short is there are times when you just need to kind of custom fit the process a little more and times when that default approach wouldn't yield the best results. So at Fractal, we've basically taken it and said, hey, let's try and inject a little more nuance and kind of create custom solutions for these different situations where the process you use for an app where if it crashes, somebody doesn't get to watch a video is naturally going to be different from one where if, if the app crashes, somebody dies, right? There's just different stuff you want to do. So we're kind of taking a more nuanced approach. But at the end of the day, yeah, a lot of those tools in terms of how you kind of use almost like social cues and like tribalism to create the right set of behaviors are similar. It's interesting when you try to, and when we transition a little bit to the surfing world, because there's definitely already, we're starting to see guys kind of like surfing with their Apple iWatches on or Apple watches on, or, you know, having like the GoPro attached to them. And then we're starting to see like electronics that are waterproof kind of change the dynamic of surfing. And just personally, I think you might fall in the same camp. I'm a little bit of an intentional laggard in that way. I try to, I don't want that stuff. I want to be able to get into it. And I would be curious about is like the pairing off and the getting in the flow state with strangers. That's something that I've experienced surfing where you might not even know the person or a set of people you're out there. And if the conditions come together, like it's pretty exciting to be able to just dial in and get you throw a couple hoots at some stranger you don't even know getting a good wave and you feel it, they're feeling it. It's a unique experience that many people never see. Any thoughts on that? Applying this to surfing? It's funny. I mean, to the first thing you said about kind of like devices and surfing, I totally agree. I feel like that type of technology just has like no place in surfing. Like I don't want to wear an Apple watch. I remember a while back, this dude made like a long board with like a touch screen inside of it and like an internet connection. So it's like, you can surf the web while you're surfing. And I was like, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. Like that's the opposite of what we're going for. You know, that said, I think technology has a lot of application to kind of creating that really you know, authentic experience, right? And part of that experience is definitely sharing waves with other people and kind of getting into that flow state together where, and it depends on where you are. I think at a lot of beaches, 
hooting at each other and just getting that like really great vibe of you out there with a bunch of strangers, but you're all like cheering each other on and just getting great waves together. It can be super fun. You know, other places where it's a little more serious, even then you can still kind of start to get this feeling of connectedness to the other people around you where you get a great wave. And even if some, you know, salty locals, they're like giving you the nod and it's like, yeah, and you just trade waves. And there's definitely something there in terms of the flow state and being in that state of kind of intense concentration and connectedness to the thing you're doing with other people. It just kind of connects people in a way that I think few other things do. It is a difficult design challenge to simulate that and try to create, obviously in a wave pool, surf park context, the wave itself is important, but almost just as important as the social dynamic and how that all comes together. So I know you have a ton of different experiences at some of the different waves, but you know, some of the things we've heard just anecdotally from other folks is like, for example, at the Kelly Slater pool, the surf ranch, given that it is the longest wave that has ever been created in a pool, but because it's so long and so cherished, they're sort of rationed. And so if you fall, it creates a different feeling than if you are at a different park, maybe where there are 500 waves an hour instead of, you know, five. I'd love to just hear some more about, you know, both what your early, you know, surf years, the vision for surf parks, and then some experiences you might be able to share actually having lived it. Well, I've never surfed at the Kelly pool, but my understanding is by coming on this podcast. That's part of the reward. Kelly's coming on the show next and he's going to invite us out. And uh, (laughs) I got my fingers crossed. Trust me, it's high on my list. That's like actually the reason you started the podcast, right? (laughs) Someday. Exactly. Yeah. Shameless plug. Kelly. (laughs) But uh, the ones that um, I've surfed at, I actually found that feeling of hooting each other on and and that feeling of cheering to be, I don't know, like even more than when you're in the ocean. And I think it's because, you know, you're out there with like two or three other guys trying this experience that's still fairly unique, you know, like just being out there at a wave pool, I think is still just so fun and unique. And to me, just such a kind of magical experience, you know, like something out of my imagination that's come to life that hooting other people on just seems so natural, even if it's like somebody who's falling every time and can barely catch the wave. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it much until you said it, but thinking now, it really does create that sense of camaraderie with a variety of people. I mean, one of the times I went, I remember it was like a dad, you know, trying to longboard at, uh, this was a while back at Inland, and he just kept falling like every wave. And it was like his, one of his kids was out there with him. And then there was some other like random shortboarder like me. And even though it was such a weird mix of people, like we were all just like hooting each other on and just, really created that feeling. And, you know, when that dad finally got one and stood up and managed to surf the wave, we were all like, yeah, you know, so happy for him. Yeah, I'd love to just hear some of your views. We talked as well about the promise of surf parks being able to sort of curate your experience and have a little bit of variety to the wave types, because that's obviously a big part of it as well as being able to train in different wave experiences, you know, bigger, smaller, more tuned for airs, more tuned for turns. What are your perspectives on that? Thinking about these wave parks and the potential of the technology and the potential of the whole experience, I think you really have to think about the full consumer package, not just what does it feel like and how is it when you're at the park, but what does it feel like leading up to the experience and what does it feel like 
afterwards? You know, how do you keep people engaged long term, even when they're not surfing? Because the surfing itself is, you know, a relatively small amount of time. One of the things that's so exciting about especially the technology they use at, you know, BSR, for example, where they have the jets of air and you can really configure the wave, like actually real time tune the type of wave coming to you is this notion of, you know, I want to be able to create my wave playlist. Before I show up, I want to choose all the different types of waves that I want to ride. You know, I want to ride a little barrel. I want to create like the freak wedge air section, all the different options of waves to try. Even the idea of just being able to do a consistent air section with kind of a ramp coming at you sounds amazing. You get so good at air so quickly. But of course, I probably don't want to start there, right? I want to kind of warm up with like a few easy waves, get some turns in, figure out how to catch it, that kind of thing. So that idea of kind of having my playlist and tuning it over time, that would be so cool, right? And thinking about other things like that that can really keep people engaged leading up to the experience, I think is really going to be, from a business perspective, what sets uh, the winners apart, right? Like how do you take that full experience and find ways to create interesting opportunities for the consumer to engage even when they're not at the park so that it's kind of always on their mind? What do you think that ideal future state of customer engagement, you know, while they're in the facility, while they're on their way to the facility and after they leave, like what could that look like? But maybe before we get there, I'd actually love, because I know you mentioned Enland and you spent quite a bit of uh, at least a few sessions there. I'd love to hear just a little bit about that particular experience because you described for me really the first time I'd heard in in the level of detail you shared, what that wave was like, what the dynamic was like. I think that'd be really interesting to hear more about. Yeah, Inland was great. I was uh, building actually a software, an office for Pivotal for a software company in Austin at the time. And so basically every time I arrived at the airport, I would go straight to Inland. And every time I left Austin, I would go to Inland and then hop on the plane. Super, super fun wave. The whole place definitely was Texas. It was pretty scrappy. And toward the end, you know, you kind of show up and they'd be like, all right, like about halfway down, there's a hole in the fence. And of course, the whole thing, it's kind of that Kelly Slater technology, but on a much smaller scale where you have this kind of underwater foil being dragged by a giant cable to create the wave. And then you surf towards this chain link fence that basically protects you from getting sucked under by the hydrofoil. So, you know, there were holes in the chain link fence. There were like rocks on the bottom of the pool somehow. You could feel kind of tears in the tarp that was uh, keeping all the water kind of from draining down into the dirt. It was a scrappy operation at the end of the day, but so much fun, so much fun. The wave was actually pretty intense, and especially in the beginning. I think they realized after a while that they had the wave turned up too high because people were getting hurt. But in the beginning, it was like a head-high barreling wave breaking in like 10 inches of water, basically. So when you fell, you would really hit the bottom hard. That experience was super interesting. I'd say I was getting worried about it staying open because they had all these plans to open restaurants and to kind of create this like beach experience. But every time I went, it was never very crowded. And usually even the the pool itself wasn't full, right? I was rarely surfing with kind of a full complement of people on both sides of the pool, which made me worry about the business model. And of course, eventually it sold to WSL actually, and uh, they shut it down. To me, that kind of like showed me some of the challenges in the business model, I think. You know, as much fun as it was and as much as I enjoyed the fact that it wasn't very crowded, it often felt like there were more people working there than there were actually using the pool, which from a business perspective can't be good. 
so the challenge I think again is going to be to find those alternate revenue streams. Like it was fairly expensive. It was like hundred bucks or something for an hour. And I'd usually go two hours. It's like $200 to uh, surf. Even then, even with those prices, I think they have to find alternative revenue streams to really make the cost of operating that thing worth it, right? Because I have to imagine even the just the power, right? Each wave you generate, I think, I know that they've done the math on the, the Kelly pool and it's like really expensive per wave, just the power being consumed. So you're going to have to find those ways to monetize all these other experiences, as, as crass as that is to say, right? I kind of hate to say that, but I think it's the reality we live in right now. Obviously, there's the individual cost for one session, but what about the fact that every time you landed, you went back? Like, what was driving that enthusiasm and excitement to just keep going back every time and every time before you leave? Is it is it the novelty? Is it more about just really just a really fun wave? Or what was driving some of your enthusiasm around it? It was probably a little bit of both, but honestly, the thing that was so fun, well, there were a couple of things. One was the novelty, obviously, the ability to try different boards. They actually had a really good selection of just different boards there. So trying Mayhem RNF at like way less leaderage than I would normally ride was fun or trying a quad fish or they just had a bunch of different fun boards to try that I normally wouldn't ride. So that was great. Like just being able to actually have a place where you could try different boards in the same conditions. For me, it's all about short, wide boards, whether it's a short board or a fish or anything. Like, I want my volume in the width. I think that really kind of made me realize that. So that was a big part of it. The wave itself, you know, it just presented you this opportunity to ride this really consistent wave where you know exactly what it's going to do as you're riding it to a certain extent, right? There was a little bit of variation based on how much motion was in the pool, you know, how many waves had broken before they would start to behave a little bit differently. And there was obviously kind of some backwash and sidewash and stuff that could affect it. But for the most part, you knew that the wave was breaking in one direction and you could just lay into every turn. So I felt like every time I went to the wave pool, that repetition made me a better surfer. And I think that's something that we're going to see as these wave pools become more pervasive and you have people that live right there, the level of surfing is bound to just go up by leaps and bounds because people are getting those repetition. They're going to put thousands of hours in that they wouldn't otherwise be putting in in these wave pools. Yeah, and it's like riding time. It's not just time in water, which is... I've surfed a large number of times this year, but actually the number of minutes that I've actually been on a wave riding and training the actual act of surfing on a wave is quite low. I mean, probably less than 10% of the total time. Where here, that's flips on its head and it's a whole different ballgame. In case anyone hasn't seen it yet, what was the actual wave like at Inland? You know, so you mentioned BSR, which for folks that might Google it or take a look at it or just have heard about it. That's really where more of an air oriented wave where that's where some of the best air moves are, you know, aerials and training for doing airs are coming out of. You see some of the pretty crazy tricks happening like the kickflip uh, Superman finger flip, I think it's called recently. But what was the wave like at Inland? Inland, it was more just kind of a big wall. You'd take off and you're surfing toward the mechanism that creates the wave, which is always kind of a weird feeling. It feels like you're surfing in the wrong direction. You were actually really staying in one place horizontally, kind of relative to the thing that's making the wave. You're not really making that progress, what would normally be across the beach, because it kind of keeps pushing you backwards. But the result is you just have this kind of endless section to do turns on. And it would barrel a little bit, you know, especially again in the beginning when they had it turned up more. 
toward the end, you could have a little barrel section. But for the most part, it was just a big wall. And for me, that was great because it meant that basically I was just doing a big bottom turn, big top turn, big bottom turn, big top turn, and just trying to get it pushed more and more radical, which, you know, for somebody who's obviously not a professional surfer is like really good for my own surfing, being able to push harder and harder at keeping that speed and throwing more spray and, you know, just getting the board all the way around on those turns. I can only imagine even for that, like, I just felt like my turns became so much better. Like, having an air section where you can practice airs over and over again. I mean, for the average surfer, how often do you end up looking at a section where you're like, oh, I actually have the speed and I'm in the right position to, you know, get some air on that. Like, it's fairly rare. But if you have the ability to just practice that over and over again, that's going to be amazing. Inland, I feel like it was very much what I'd consider kind of the first iteration of the pools and that it basically gave you, it was like one step better than the standing wave they used to have in San Diego. What was that thing called? It was like Bruticus Maximus. The flow rider? The flow rider. Yeah. It wasn't really surfing, you know, but you kind of get the feeling of it. Like inland, you know, you definitely were surfing, but the wave was just kind of a big section, like one big section that just kind of like stayed there, which was super fun and an awesome canvas to, to mess around on. But it was nothing like the kind of consistent barrels, consistent air sections, or like ledges that you can create in some of the ones that came afterwards. This might be a little bit tactical, but how do you think about the water? Like, so specifically water clarity, it's fresh water, it's not salt water. Like, what, what were your reactions or what was that like surfing in fresh water? You needed a board with a little more volume than you probably would normally ride. At inland, the water got really freaking brown. <laughs> it was like very filthy, especially toward the end when they were about to close. So it was a little off-putting. So, you know, I think it's probably nicer to have clear water. And then, of course, the whole brainy amoeba scandal happened at BSR, which was scary. For me, it was so fun. I didn't worry about it so much. Like, I probably would have gone even if the brainy amoeba had, had still been there and just risked it. It's so fun. It's um, definitely glad that the industry as a whole has acknowledged that just like wave shape and venue design is important. Obviously, water management, filtration, basic safety stuff is also super important. Not that these facilities weren't doing that, but it's just come quite a ways over the last few years. Yeah, I really think that's no longer a concern. I feel like, and who knows whether it was actually even from the pool itself. I kind of doubt it was, frankly. It was more coincidence, probably. But it definitely created the conditions under which all of these parks are going to be taking tons of precautions. Did you think about insurance or anything like that going into it? Again, very, very tactical. But just since you've been to a few of these, you've thought about it a lot. Only insofar as there's a lot of operating costs. Again, coming at it from this kind of technology business perspective, I think the key to turning these into both childhood dreams come true and successful businesses are going to be finding ways to have additional revenue streams coming in. So like if I were building a wave pool right now, I would be calling up, you know, Amazon and Twitch and figuring out how to partner right there. Live stream. Yeah, like I should be able to log in and just watch 24/7 people punting massive crazy airs that no one has ever seen before. Double supermen and triple clips and you know whatever people are going to be doing going forward here. That to me seems like such an obvious one because 24-7 entertainment, and you're going to be able to create a whole community around that. And I do think the community will end up different from 
your classical surf community, you know, the one that I grew up with. Surfers are already pretty well programmed to pull up Surfline or your local surf cam and kind of take a peek. I don't see how that dynamic wouldn't apply perfectly to surf parks. And that sure would be fun to just be able to take a look, see what it looks like today and schedule your time slot in there. So I definitely have used the surf cams myself for crowd testing, (laughs) you know, like, dude, where do I want to surf today? Like, let me look at the camera and see how busy it is. Was that your experience that the scheduling, I know you mentioned it wasn't the busiest while you were there, but if it was busy, you know, what's the right way to kind of manage that demand? Probably I would imagine having a nice restaurant and a place to grab a drink while you're waiting would be a nice thing. But yeah, I'd love to hear from your perspective, like what might make a best in class revenue or I should say restaurant, bar, waiting area experience and like how might you structure the demand, if there was more folks than could go at one time, like, how do you do that well without losing momentum? I think Inline had the right idea and it just never came together for whatever reason. You know, it should be a destination, right? It should be somewhere that you go, not just to do your one hour of surfing, but to also, you know, hang out in a hot tub, hang out at the bar, you know, get a great meal, really go to feel like you're in surf-themed Disneyland or something. That is going to be the key to kind of solving that scheduling problem where I want to be able to show up and hang out for a few hours and then do a session, then hang out a little longer and then do another session, that kind of thing. You know, on the weekend, it should feel like an all day kind of social thing. For me, you know, coming from the tech side, it's really about those experiences around it. You know, I can definitely imagine having parks where they make more money off of people watching the surfing than they do off of the surfing itself really using it as venues for contests, getting more serious about kind of the organized sports aspect of it, you know, doing partnerships. The streaming is massive. You know, again, there's so much money made on people watching video games or people just watching other people chat about their lives, like the ability to kind of tune in every day and watch this really progressive surfing happening, I think literally could end up making more money and being the real business opportunity, more so than even just the money they make from charging an hourly fee to to go use the pool. Your family surfs as well. And this has come up on the show before. Like, what is that family experience at the surf park if, you know, mom or dad wants to get out there and get some waves? Like, what's the rest of the family doing during that time? I mean, I think you're hitting on it right there. Exactly. I mean, for my current family, where it's me and my wife, who are both surfers, that's basically how we met. And we met surfing up in San Francisco, actually, where we'd go out to OB. And I've seen her get some truly massive waves uh, at Ocean Beach. And then my kids, who are four and seven, so very much just learning. The idea of having the kiddie pool area where they can go and, you know, get tiny little ankle slappers while my wife and I surf together. I mean, that just sounds freaking amazing. Like, I can't imagine that today. Today, we have to basically take turns. You know, one of us goes out to surf while the other one takes care of the two kids, and then we just swap back and forth. So yeah, that family experience would be really compelling. Are you guys skiers or snowboarders? Because I'm curious if you've taken the kids up, or they're obviously still quite young, but if they are old enough yet where you've been up to Mammoth or wherever... We've tried it, but I think this will probably be the first season where we successfully pull it off, probably, getting both of them out there. You said three and seven, right? So they're still pretty young. 
you could see the parallels to the ski lodge effect and the ski school effect. And so like the other crazy thing is looking at some of the videos at a BSR is 11 year olds doing airs, you know, beyond my wildest dreams from what I could ever pull off. How do you think about that for your kids? If they are stoked about it, where, there goes soccer practice. I kind of alluded to this earlier, and it does relate to what we do here at Fractal, you know, that attention to keeping people in this state of deliberate practice and logging those hours of experience and basically constantly pushing themselves. There's a, a story that I think totally relates to this, and it's from a book called The Talent Code that we think about a lot in terms of how to get the most out of people and how to create the conditions under which people really improve at something. And I think it's really relevant to these surf parks. And uh, this all happened back in the 1930s where you had the airmail pilots working for a branch of the government that would eventually become the Air Force, but was not yet the Air Force. And they just died all the time. They basically just crashed all the time. People were terrible pilots pre-1930s for the most part. And the reason was because the way they taught those pilots was to basically just take them up in a plane with an instructor, and then the instructor would take their hands off of the controls and say, fly. And the pilots would fly and kind of fly around and stuff. And, you know, they'd do that a few times and maybe log 100 hours or something, and then they'd be a pilot. And then they'd go start delivering mail or doing whatever. And, and at the time, it was actually this, this national emergency. Like, President Roosevelt got involved and said, you know, these pilots keep dying. We have to do something about this. We're running out of pilots, literally. World War II was looming at that time, right? And, and eventually the demand for pilots skyrocketed. And the way they solved this is there was this guy named Edwin Link who created this thing called the Link Trainer. And it was just a little box that had a bunch of flight controls in it and some pneumatic pumps and a little electric motor. And he pretty successfully simulated the cockpit of the planes that they had at the time so that they could actually have pilots log thousands of hours in this dinky little box pretending to fly before they actually went up and, and went into a plane. And really importantly, they learned how to fly off of the instruments alone so that there was bad weather. You know, they didn't have to rely on their own uh, eyeballs to figure out where they were. They could actually land the plane even if it was foggy. That alone, that introduction of this little simulator and just them spending these hours upon hours upon hours, not even flying for reals, but just pretending to fly in this thing that, you know, pretty accurately replicated the experience, drastically improved the ability of these pilots and therefore reduced the amount that they crashed and died. To me, when I look at these wave parks, what I see are these link trainers, right? The ability for these people to spend so many more hours drilling in all of these different conditions, you know, whether it's airs or barrels or just turns, you know, they're going to get so much more experience doing it. So I imagine the kids who are growing up now, who are putting in all of this time, they're just going to have so many more hours of experience surfing that, you know, they'll be doing things that we can't even imagine. For my kids, if we manage to hopefully someday be located very near a surf park, if they build one, you know, around us here in LA, the ability to progress just by being there day in, day out, it's going to be mind boggling from board design to the type of surfing they do, we're going to see this massive progression of the sport as a result. That's the holy grail right there is get the whole family getting barreled and uh, <laughs> do it every weekend and even during the week. And uh, part of me worries that in a controlled environment, you might create overconfidence, especially with kids that, you know, they're out there surfing, they're out there all the time. And then 
all of a sudden they're out in the ocean and they're maybe taking more risks than they might normally or kind of that's the negative side of it. I think the more positive side is hopefully it can create more people who are sort of environmentally conscious and think about things like, oh, maybe I shouldn't throw this uh, garbage on the beach or pick up after myself because this is the natural part. These are the free waves. I got to protect these. Any thoughts on that? Having grown up in Santa Barbara when I did, which was kind of through the 80s and 90s, there was a real kind of self-consciousness about how authentic of a surfer you could be and what it means to be an authentic surfer. And of course, there was a lot of localism and all that stuff. And the wave pools and kind of everything that represents is in some ways completely the opposite. And I think there's a lot of people, you know, especially people that I know and that I grew up surfing with who are really bothered by that. You know, the fact that it's like, oh, this that's not authentic surfing. That's not real surfing. You know, real surfing is waking up at the crack of dawn and going to check it without any help and taking out the board that you shaped yourself and shredding these waves, right, in a very particular way. And I just completely always rejected that notion of there's only one way to go surf and, and it has to be this very kind of authentic self-conscious way that kind of is like aggro and macho. When you break it down, like we're literally just adults in rubber suits, like frolicking in the water. There's nothing at stake, (laughs) you know, for most people, (laughs) unless you're a pro, there's nothing at stake. You're just out there to have a good time. So the notion of that localism and that kind of aggroness and aggression is just, I was like, why? We're not getting paid for this. You know, who cares? It's definitely a scarcity kind of mindset. Like, all right, I'm a local here, meaning I get priority over you, meaning that there's a fixed amount of waves and not enough for both of us. But that, it changes. That evolves. But I hear what you're saying there with the localism, and I've definitely seen it even growing up in New York. Most people don't even know there are waves in New York, but there is a very deep surfing culture, and and there is deep broy localism. <laughs> I may or may not have participated in said broy localism. But yeah, me too. Yeah, it's part of it. But, uh, you know, my hope is it's opens up people's minds a little bit, even if it is only in the pool and hopefully makes it a little bit more fun all around. And would you tell your friends that the Santa Barbara folks back home, like that you went to the parks or do you kind of keep it as like you're a bit of a secret behind the scenes or how do some of your surfing friends react to it? I totally tell them. I think when I was an impressionable teenager, you know, you try and fit in and join the local crew. You know, I, I grew up surfing the pit in Santa Barbara that was like Bobby Martinez's local spot and a bunch of people are all super hardcore and like salty old dudes drinking beer all day on the beach and, you know, hollering it at anybody who falls on a wave, right? So it was kind of a local scene, even though it's like Santa Barbara and the most accessible beach ever. When Costco started selling wave storms and I bought one and, and tried it as a joke and it was just so much fun to surf. And then I didn't realize that I was kind of participating in the soft top revolution that was coming and this kind of different approach to surfing, I think that it represented, I really just dropped all kind of pretense of being a hardcore local authentic surfer because it just started to seem silly. Like I said, nothing at stake. We're just all kind of messing around here out in the waves. Like, why are we taking ourselves so seriously? There's no point. And then, of course, once you had people like Kalani Rob and J-O-B getting sponsored by Catch Surf and now doing wave pool stuff and just taking this totally different approach, I just think it's the best thing for the sport. The best thing for the sport of surfing is to not take itself so seriously and to realize that, you know, it's just supposed to be fun. 
when I was growing up in surfing, it was really like there was one archetype of person that surfed. And without getting too political, like it was basically like white dudes who liked punk rock, who lived by the beach, and like that's who was surfing. That's it. No women, no um, underrepresented groups. It was just like this really, really narrow archetype. And I think part of it was that localism. Like what we didn't realize at the time is by kind of creating that exclusionary environment, you know, it wasn't just like keeping the kooks out. It was keeping like whole groups of people out who just weren't comfortable in a situation where all these very similar looking guys are all like vibing each other and splashing and getting in fights and stuff. It just, you know, there's tons of people who don't want to put themselves in that position. So we were kind of closing off the sport to all these different groups of people who I think would really love it and be really good at it. A little bit of an elitism element, like, okay, you can be a surfer as long as you live at the beach and ride something between 25 and 45 liters. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. Every board has to be the same, like, you know, Kelly Slater, super narrow potato chip of the right dimensions and everything. So, you know, I think we didn't realize it at the time, but it really was exclusionary. So for me, like abandoning that quote unquote authentic surfing, which I think is hard because it's something we all grew up with. So there's a lot of nostalgia there. It's the best thing possible. You know, we should move past that. We should move to something that's more inclusive, that really embraces the fun and, you know, silliness of the sport. And when I think about my kids, that's what I want for them. You know, I want them growing up in a surf community that's all about fun and connection to nature and doing something that doesn't involve computers and, you know, involve looking at screens, but is just purely out there in nature, having fun, being connected, just enjoying it. With the wave pools, you know, which is weirdly somehow related to this whole like soft top thing, I think, just the kind of ride anything movement, right? Just this kind of expanding of the mind in terms of what is possible with surfing and what are we going to allow ourselves to do and what are we going to allow ourselves to enjoy, right? I think the wave pools falls into that category of right anything. That's what I want for my kids. You know, I think that's going to help us stop taking it so seriously and help us, frankly, progress the sport into the future. You know, that's what we need. I love that. And uh, I couldn't agree more. And uh, just so awesome to have you come and share and You've been there, you've done that, as they say, and it's just really refreshing to hear that. I just couldn't agree more, and maybe that's a good way to segue us out, but as we do that, what's the best way for folks listening to learn more about you, connect, learn more about Fractal? Where should we send them? So check out our website at thefractalway.com. It has all the contact info there. We're also on LinkedIn and post a ton of content, you know, mostly related to software and technology. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way. Hey everyone, here's Chris again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. For those of you who want more information on surf parks and the topics covered in these episodes, Surf Park Central's insider membership might be for you. Insiders are people serious about surf parks and the organizations they represent. You can join Insiders for a monthly membership fee and rewatch all the surf park summits that have ever happened. You can get transcripts, access to research reports and white papers, even see webinars with special guests like those who visit us on this podcast. So check out surfparkcentral.com slash insiders to learn more about this exclusive professional community for surf parks. Check it out, surfparkcentral.com.
Thanks for listening, guys. This is Chris Klusner again, just with a few last-minute thoughts. Please do check out our website, beyondoceanpodcast.com, to subscribe to our newsletter and get exclusive updates from your local surf parks and out-of-ocean surfing experiences near you. You can also learn more about our sponsors and the incredible guests we host on the show. You can also access show notes and links. Anything that's covered in the podcast will be featured on the website. Again, it's beyondoceanpodcast.com. Check it out.